Honestly, she wrapped her headdress around her face. She wept into her headdress. And we didn't share the same language, but we shared the same space. And I was able to put my arm on her arm and I was able to be there with her in the pain of that and, and to bring her story home. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. I'm Andy Dixon, and thanks for joining me for another fantastic corridor. Episode 40. We're up to episode 40. It seems like not that long ago, this podcast was just an idea bubbling away in the back of my mind, and now we are 40 episodes in. So thank you for being part of that journey with me. If you like what you hear on the podcast, make sure you head over to Facebook or Instagram. Uh, find us at, at downtoearth.conversations to stay in the loop of what's going on with the podcast, see some stuff that former guests are up to, and let's be honest, read a few of my opinions of life that you may or may not care about. One thing you might have seen already if you follow me on social media is that during this last week, uh, the podcast hit 4,000 downloads. Now, I'm not all about numbers. I've always said if this podcast encouraged just one person, then it was worth it. And if that one person was me, it was still worth it. But it does show that you all are listening and you're continuing to listen. And for that, I am extremely grateful. And I hope that you are getting as much from these conversations as I am. Speaking of which, in today's episode, I was privileged to sit and chat with New Zealand media personality Petra Bagist. I used to watch Petra on TV as a teenager in the mid-90s, and she's done a ton of things on radio and television since then. And while doing that, she's always managed to find ways to make meaningful contributions to society alongside her media roles, to bring awareness or aid in raising funds, to champion things dear to her heart. And more recently, Petra has found herself working alongside episode 4 guest, the Reverend Frank Ritchie, as a media chaplain, providing support to the media of Aotearoa. And let's not forget, she's a wife and a mum and all that goes with that. We talk about her media career, the different twists and turns that it's taken, how she's used the platform that she was given for good, some of the experiences that she's had while supporting charities and causes, her move into media chaplaincy, her journey learning te reo Māori and what a difference that's made in her life, and she gives us a sneak peek into her own upcoming podcast. This is episode 40 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Petra Bagist. Welcome to the podcast. Kanakwe, Andy. It's lovely to be here. Uh, let's start with Nohia Kwe. Who are you? Where are you from? Um, called Petra Bags Talkawanga. I know I'm supposed to finish with that. I was born in uh, Whanganui Atara in Wellington and spent my life growing up around different cities in New Zealand and even had a stint overseas in England with my whanau as a, an early teenager. And then, um, yeah. Ended up cool. back in Tamaki Makoto, and this is where I've had my own family, gotten married and worked yeah. for the last yeah couple of decades. Nice. And uh, for those who are in New Zealand, uh, a lot of us will recognise you through a lot of what you've done in the media, but for those who are listening from overseas, do you want to just describe briefly, you know, what, what, what it is that you've done in the media? I know there's lots of different roles, but yeah, kind of, how did you get into that and what does that look like for you? 
When I was at Canterbury University doing a Bachelor of Fine Arts, it, it also goes by another name, a BFA, um, a Bachelor of <clears throat> All, I uh, swapped waitressing part-time for telly part-time and worked on a regional music TV station called Cry TV. It was awesome. It would drive up a hill and broadcast out of a monastery uh, five nights nice. a week. Yeah, very cool. And then uh, through a series of incredible incidences, ended up on a uh, youth show called Ice TV and spent the next five years learning the craft of making tally uh, with the best bunch of humans ever and added to that national and international travel shows and game shows and um, house renovation shows. And so, yeah, sort of did this fantastic Ice TV project for five years and, and did all sorts of other TV projects um, in the mix. And, yeah, got to present. New Zealand Television Awards and Christmas in the Park and all sorts of other super fun broadcasts um, and also got married and had three children at the same time and then ended up on TVNZ's Breakfast, which um, unfortunately for me did my head in, wasn't suited to the hours or the system and so left kind of full-time broadcasting, yeah, back in the early, yeah, 2013. So it wasn't something you grew up going, hey, this is what I really want to do? Humorously enough, I think I grew up wanting to be Miss New Zealand. You know, they used to yeah. have pageants. <laughs> I didn't really rate my chances in a bikini and heels. It wasn't that that appealed. And I'm not sure if it was world peace that appealed. Um, but there's something about people that I am tremendously addicted to. I really like humans and I like communicating with humans. So, yeah, uh, no, I hadn't, hadn't thought about it, but it kind of made sense when it happened. Yeah, I felt at home in, in, in the space. Nice. I've definitely filled up some of my teenage years with the Ice TV, yeah. uh, Ice TV thing, and I'm um, Hastings High School old boy, so I was always a Nathan Rarity yeah. fan. Yeah, um, as he's a an, yeah. an old boy as well. Um, but yeah, just really enjoyed that, and it's been great to see where you've gone since then. Kia ora. What's been your sort of favourite part of? And I, I guess there's a whole lot of parts of the media thing that, like you say, aren't really you. Um, like you discovered with breakfast, what are the what, what's been your kind of favourite part of being involved in media stuff? Oh, I am just putting it out there. I am useless at favourites because I happen to be um, addicted to enthusiasm. Like enthusiasm is my drug of choice, cool. and uh, I, I kind of get slightly offended on behalf of Pollyanna when people say I don't want to be all Pollyanna about it, and I'm like, what is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of enthusiasm, people. Nice. So uh, basically enthusiasm and energy is what I will usually bring to a room. What I've loved in broadcasting um, is the amazing adventures I've been on. Like I, we got to film for maybe three or four years a national travel show. I got to try out almost every adventure tourism place, person, thing you could do in this country. And what a joy. Like abseil down the Clyde Dam. For Ice TV, I got to climb the Ice Tower and kiss the, the blinking light at the top. We got to, um, you know, ride on a jet boat on, on sewage ponds. We got to wakeboard on the Honganui River. I got to mountain bike on snow. I got to bungee jump out of, you know, just the amount of experiences and the number of people I met. Um, that was a true highlight. Um, helping people and telling good stories um, definitely also floats my boat. So so even the silly thing of we did a show called um, Hot Property and 
was before auctioning new house was yep. a hot thing and we were kind of like oh the show that doesn't sell people's houses but we would kind of come alongside people who couldn't sell their houses and we literally did their houses up and yep. you know got them on the market so that was kind of cool yeah I I I just like you I don't like meeting people finding out what makes them tick it's that's all a good time for me nice you say that the the breakfast thing wasn't really your bag I guess one thing that stands out to me from your time there is the responsibility you had of presenting after Christchurch earthquake. Yeah. What are your memories of that and and the like how do you how do you do that? How do you be the face to a nation during such a crisis like that? That was a true highlight and privilege and I tell you I felt um, like everything had come right during that season. I remember our uh, our first I remember I think, waking up from an afternoon nap and they were trying to get hold of Corin Dam and myself who were um, fronting at the time and they got hold of Corin first and so they sent him to Christchurch. And so I was the person who was in the studio and we had no new footage. We just had TVNZ sort of leftover footage from the day before. So it was like reporting in a vacuum and TV3 did this phenomenal job and they had all this new footage. But as it unfolded, I came home to the fact that we were actually being useful. We were disseminating information. We were passing on useful, helpful, strategic information. We were um, calming fears and we were um, connecting people and we were being kind of a public service announcer. And we were telling the story for all of us. So there was this sense of the team of 5 million that, you know, happens to come along during a global pandemic. But there was the sense of us yeah. being together. And I, I really felt like Corinne and I had come home at that point and all the, the talk, the chatter about the previous hosts would die down because we were being caned on Facebook and attacked on yeah. all sorts of social media. But actually, funnily enough, that that noise sort of all came back afterwards. It, it was a it was um yeah, it was a it was a surprise to me. But what wasn't what was a much better surprise for me was the the resonant goodness of being useful actually in the wrong. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Such a privilege. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I for me, it, it just really stuck out when I thought of you and your career, you know, that, that being a moment that was just so massive yeah. and could have been done so badly. Yeah, um, I, I re- there was there, there was such a, like they were like oh Petra looks tiny on the couch by herself so Peter Williams the newsreader um, came and sat on the couch with me but for me there was this sitting and empathising with it's like mm. allowing yourself to have the information and be credible or authoritative without being authoritarian or overbearing and then to be vulnerable and with or what I would now call bearing with in pain, but without being uh, needing to be supported yourself. You, you need yeah. not to have to uh, kind of engender in your audience, oh, she's not going to be okay. So yeah. so I did consciously go into that going, I want to be able to empathise, to bear with, and also to um, be strong enough to, to make it look like nobody has to look out for me. I'm okay. Yeah. 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 I oh, know that's yeah. awesome. Um, you mentioned just back a little bit about getting slammed by people on social media, that sort of thing. Yeah. Is that something that has been hard to deal with or are you the sort of person that can just ignore that and brush it off or what's that been like for you? It is um, somewhere in the middle of those, are the, if that's your continuum. 
I remember going onto a website and reading something like 52 or 74 or something negative comments about me and, and your palms get sweaty and your heart rate goes up and you your cheeks flush. You, you kind of There is a physiological response to engaging with people's um, hatred or disgust or dislike of you. It's like, oh, whoa. And I remember the publicist at the time, um, Andy, said, what you're not hearing are all the hundreds and thousands of people who are loving what you're doing. So yeah. you, you're just hearing one small side, one small vocal side of the story. I know that there were people who started accounts to hate on me. Um, one person, um, you know, I, I won't say their name, but uh, when I went into their accounts and looked at their lives, I was like, oh, why am I Why am I um, engaging with this in a way that um, – that this person actually has been given permission to speak into my life. Um, they, uh, not to degrade them at all because I don't need to, but they had their own um, real life struggles. They had their own life that they were living and maybe their pain was enough to be able to push some of it out on, on some faceless kind of, well, you know, on some person who's not going to bite back. But um yeah, it, it, it was it was something that was learning and growing. I'd always said, oh, you know, um, it's not important what everybody thinks about you. You can't please all the people all the time. But I did a pretty good job of trying to make everybody like me. And and I came home to the reality, you cannot, and it's yeah. okay. So I definitely landed on that. I do wish, looking back, that I had been supported to respond more um, proactively. I wish I'd done a Jesse Mulligan and replied to the he had something like 400 tweets hate him when he went on um, right. TDNZ for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And I wish I'd front-footed it, you know? So that's my only kind of look back and go, hmm, yeah. wish, I, wish I'd been braver. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, there's just thousands of us who have jobs where, you know, we don't get people looking at us like it's a fishbowl and having their personal opinions about how good we are at our job or not. You know, it's quite a, it's quite a unique kind of um, role to be in. I guess politicians and media are things that everybody thinks they know how to do and, and yeah. that they could do it better, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, you're under a magnifying glass. People can dislike you just because they don't like your personality or they can think you're doing a bad job. They can dislike you professionally or they can dislike the content of what you're delivering. So they can dislike your um, interview with a political person because they don't like that political party. So there's just so many different ways of approaching <laughs> being disliked or yeah. being critiqued or being judged it it definitely did ask of me how will I um, spend my time and energy like, whose voice will I give access what boundaries will I have and um, what do I what do the people and powers that I believe are really important what do they have to say about me yeah is it those kind of experiences that have led towards your being involved with media chaplaincy? Definitely. Yeah, definitely think that um, that has sharpened my awareness of of the difficulties that so many journalists and reporters and people who work in media face. Yeah, it is definitely a shoot the messenger situation that happens. It almost feels like the, the chaplaincy work you do within the media needs to be done by someone who knows what it's like. It's an interesting point. I'm reading about it at the moment. It's called peer advocacy. So it's the idea that um, if a military chaplain works in the military, to be ex-military makes more sense because you have a legitimacy or a credibility um, the way 
Reverend Frank Ritchie and I talk about it, is you, you get it. You get some of it. You, you don't get all of it. You're not like, I know exactly what you're feeling. But there is a level of comprehension and understanding that makes a difference. You know, you don't have to sort of explain the ABC. Yeah. So there's the media chaplaincy role that you, you do. Do you want to explain a little bit about what is that? What do you actually do? What does that look like practically? And um, it's it's obviously something you're passionate about because you're studying to get better at that as well. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just fill us in on what it, what does that look like? Well, I'm at the beginning of my journey. Probably, I was um, uh, recruited to CBA to look after a group of about 300 Christians who work in media. So. Um, we figured out, or rather Julia Bloor figured out, that a lot of people who work in the media who have a faith feel really isolated. Sometimes they feel like they're the only ones. And that never is a great feeling for anybody who feels all alone or like they don't belong, which I think most humans intersect with in some sphere. And so it's grown over the years to be this kind of network, not of how can I get a new job or who can I meet to further my career, but how um, can I resource, support, and um, encourage other Christians working in the space to to not feel like they have to choose between their faith and their vocation, to feel like they're heard, seen, and understood, um, to have a safe space where they can, you know, be all those beautiful facets of them that they are. And when we were in our first lockdown in New Zealand, I realised that while Christians often have recourse to um, a pastor or a mate who has the same faith as them, a house group leader, a former youth group leader, a someone, a someone who is a mentor or a guide or a, you know, a good quality ear in their lives, that people outside of faith practice don't have much afina, much support, yeah. much care for their spiritual selves. And whether or not their spiritual selves are developed, um, we are body, soul, and spirit. We are all of these, not separated, but connected, intertwined, um, morphed. You know, we are operating in the world as as a physical, emotional, mental, spiritual being. And what would offering spiritual care or afina or or holding space with people in difficult times look like? And the way I look at it is. Um, you know, if you need to go to a counsellor, a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist, um, excellent, do it. And if you need to have a rant to your missus or your mate, do it. But there's space in between those two, um, yeah. which can be held, I think, quite well by something like a media chaplain, somebody who works mm. in media. They can, you know, we can come alongside and understand their context and then um, hold space, whether it's whether it's about spiritual topics or, or nothing to do with it, whether it's yep. just about the daily grind or feeling mm. flat or, yeah, or questions or, yeah, being caught in the middle of an argument, um, being caught in the middle of a contract negotiation, self-worth, identity, all sorts of stuff. So I just sort of felt like this was a space where there was room for um, more hands at the mill. What is it? More yep. hands at the till? Where, what, where do we uh, put the hands? I don't know. More hands on deck. I felt like there could be more hands, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more ears, more yeah. ears, more hands. And so I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to have to actually put my money where my mouth is. And so I started doing chaplaincy studies through the School of Theology at Otago Uni. And so you're doing a lot of sitting down listening. Yes. It's quite a challenge. I like it. <laughs> is, is that hard not to be trying to give advice all the time? 
Um, the good news, Andy, is that I tried to give advice for the first about 30-something years of my life, and I, they say the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing, expect a different outcome, so I have figured out, raise the Lord, that <laughs> um, listening is a more powerful and effective tool in life with everyone, anywhere, than talking. Now, yeah. I do think that there's room for talking, but I got that puppy covered. So yeah, yeah, yeah nice. the listening is the listening's where it's at for me. Do you find that for a lot of people, you know, they they come, they share, you listen, and that's kind of all they need, uh, or are they or are they looking for you to input in some other way? Uh, I think because because I am me, um, there will always be an element of talking, and so uh, I do tell stories um, based on my own experience, and I do. I do, I guess, affirm what I hear them say and yeah. ask questions, curiosity questions like, oh, that's interesting. Did you notice that you said this or have you thought about that or what about this This coming at it from this direction? So uh, whether I've got the balance right, I honestly don't know yet. Uh, I, I do know that uh, in my own experience of counselling and spiritual direction, I want input from the person I'm, I'm yes. um, with. I, yeah. I want it to be a conversation. So I kind of just um, have my radar up for not talking too much, but I also give myself permission to to partake in the conversation because otherwise it's not a convo. Yeah, yeah. And otherwise I guess you, you could be seen to be trying to be the counsellor or the therapist, Yeah, yeah. which actually um, you're not offering that service. No, we're not. Um, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you've been involved in a bunch of other things over your time as well, um, involved with organisations like World Vision, Tear Fund, uh, The Parenting Place. What is it that draws you to those kind of organisations? Um, well, I guess you asked me what I liked most about media, and I remember the very first year I got involved, 1995, when I was first year um, on national television at ICE TV, and I was like, wow, I've been given a platform. Like, I mean, this just sounds so trite, but I'm I'm somebody who kind of... Um, while being very uh, gregarious and and able to dance without drinking a lot of alcohol, I <laughs> also take things very seriously. So I'm kind of this yeah. slightly random combo that uh, thought I need to be able, I need to give back. I essentially just felt, felt like that. I thought I've got this amazing privilege of being on telly. I need to give back. And so got involved with World Vision um, immediately and f- probably from that time on have tried to have an international and a national charity that I uh, dedicate significant time and energy to and yeah that's that's um, um, been more and less over the years in terms of I'm still an ambassador for breast cancer cure and still um, you know do all sorts of different little things but at the moment my main ones would be tier fund and for years it was um, world vision and then, yeah, work with people like the parenting mm. place as well. It's really cool. Yeah, I won't get you to pick favourites on that, but um, but who's your favourite? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's your favourite? Not but, um, but what are some highlights from being involved in those kind of organisations? Oh well, um, again, like highlights, a highlights measured in laughter or tears. Um, a highlight that you could measure in tears is being in Nepal 
um, with one of TFM's partners, Share and Care, on the ground because TFM does a lot of work where they partner with people, locals who are doing the work already, and then they provide resource, um, financial and and um, capabilities and administrative resource as well. And sitting with women who had survived um, being sex trafficked, and so the immense um, pain and the palpable pain of their journey. And I remember this one time sitting in a very small um, building in a village that we'd, you know, crossed, I think, 15 rivers and taken four hours to get to by truck. We sat in this um, small room away from prying eyes because even though she was free and even though she was back in her village, to admit to having been sexually trafficked would make her unclean or dirty or less than. It would degrade her in the eyes of her community. So with a translator and um, a nurse, one of the people to make sure, social worker, nurse who who cared for her, we we sat and she told us her story and I think we were the first people she'd ever spoken aloud her story to. And, and, I mean, obviously this is a recording, but I'm holding my hands out in front of me, cupped together, and you feel like you've been given a sacred gift of taonga. And to, and to take that, to carry that taonga, that story, um, that sacred pain home to New Zealand, and we, we, I spent um, a lot of time writing an article for the Sunday newspaper uh, about it and, you know, I got my friends to proofread it because it's not in my bag. And, and to tell her story and to raise money to, to prevent, to, to assist um, with getting women out of sexual slavery, to assist with rehabilitation. That's 100% a highlight. Mm. Um, but it started with that one-on-one encounter, that kanohe kite kanohe, face-to-face encounter where she, honestly, she wrapped her headdress around her face. She wept into her headdress. And we didn't share the same language, but we shared the same space. And I was able to put my arm on her arm and I was able to be there with her in the pain of that and and to bring her story home and New Zealanders I know respond to um yeah they respond with such generosity in their hearts to other people's um authentic stories and cries for help so yeah that's a highlight yeah it's interesting even listening to that I guess that challenges me whether highlight's the right word um, yeah, yeah that's why I was saying like, what do you measure a highlight in but memorable moments I yeah, guess. yeah 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 um, yeah, I mean, you know, um, John Bridges and I flew in an Ithaca around Piha, raising money for a 40-hour famine one year, and um, uh, World Vision sort of when email was new, was it new? Yeah. I don't know, when, when something was new, um, when online fundraising was new, World Vision sent out an email that we wrote together that was my personal email saying, will you sponsor me? And I think we raised like $100,000 from that email. Wow. And it was just like, wow, yeah. you know, when technology yeah. can help us do this really important work. Um, I came home with a suitcase full of cashmere scarves and gave everybody a cashmere scarf for Christmas one one year from Nepal. That was a highlight, you know, a highlight yeah. is, is to be in another place and to meet another people and to be like, wow, this connects us. You know, here's our shared humanity. And, yeah, there, there are many highlights, yeah. Cool. Uh, one thing you've been uh, vocal on over recent times as well is your te reo journey. Yeah. What was it that, you know, has sparked that for you and why be so public about it? 
well, firstly, I wish I was more public about it. I wish I was shouting it from the rooftops um, every day. <laughs> uh, I, I told the story today, and it's funny that you ask. I stood outside Parenting Place one day, and I do love to learn. Like, new things is, like, a happy place for me. So I stood outside um, Parenting Place, and my favourite prayers in the world are the really real ones. <laughs> Um, like when you're washing the dishes at the kitchen sink and say, God, I, I need a bigger audience than this, which I did once. And I had the three small children at home. And I'm like, I need a bigger audience. And the next day, <laughs> World Vision called and said, we want to do a tour. We want to go around New Zealand. Um, Julia Grace will sing. You'll speak. There'll be a chocolate fountain seven, seven layers tall. And we just had the most wonderful fun going around New Zealand talking to women. Um, well, I stood outside um, Parenting Place and I said, God, what should I do? Should I study creative writing? Do I do theology? Should I do te reo Māori? What should I do? Like, yeah. help. And I walked inside and they said, right, guys, we're going to start a hairanga. We're going to learn about te Māori. We're going to learn te reo Māori. You can sign up to classes. And I'm like, great. Yeah. <laughs> because I awesome. heard somebody say, do the easiest, most beautiful thing in front of you. Don't make it harder than it needs to be. Just whatever is the easiest, most beautiful thing in front of you, do that. Take some action. So I started learning te reo Māori and it took me about two years to get my vowel sounds right. <laughs> and I started with one two-hour class a, a week and then I ended up doing three um, sort of almost full days a week. And I have still got um, a small amount of reo and it's not conversational, although I can say would you like a coffee and how are you and um, a few phrases but now I see the world it is it's hard to explain Andy I see the world differently like it 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 sparkles differently I get to I this is how to describe it I got to fall in love with my life all over again because I get to see it through a different cultural lens like yeah like we're so used to our own story and our own terminology. Even as Christians, we're like, oh, yeah, Lord God. But Lord God in Thiru Māori is kai whakaora. And for those who speak, um, they know ora in kia ora. is wellness or wholeness. And and, uh, and whaka is that is, makes it an action. And kai means the person who does it. So kai whakaora is, is, in this respect, the creator of wellness and wholeness. And I'm like, oh, it's still happening. It's still active. God is in yeah. the process right now and now and now of creating wholeness and wellness. Now, theoretically, I know that that's true, that creation didn't happen however many millennia ago and now it's all done and created and here we are. But but to feel it fresh because there's yeah. new language and new poetry and new story um, has been yeah, a, a true revelation. So I don't public speak or do anything now without um, using some Thiru Māori and I see it as separating us from the rest of the world and I see it as such an addition and I see the partnership um, between Māori and Pākehā, European New Zealanders, as fruitful. I think it can be and will be so amazing but that that journey has involved a lot of tears for me I have cried and cried and cried I have been on marae and cried and and seen the mamai seen the pain um and and I, I I'm 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 up for it I I'm which, which actually is really important because otherwise it's just another act of colonization isn't it yeah. if 
if we're just coming in as Pākehā and learning their language so that we can add it to what we've already got mm. and we're not engaging with the culture, we're not engaging with the history, mm. you know, we're just doing it to them all over again. Yeah. I feel like I feel like the Ao Māori, Māori worldview asks questions of me. It asks me to be in the world differently. It asks me to integrate my my physical self with my spiritual self more. It asks me to care for the for the land more. It asks me to care and consider my community more. It it, it really does um, ask more of me in a way that I think adds to. Everything adds to me, adds to my community, adds to the world at large. Yeah, it, it, it's and, and I feel so grateful to have had Maori friends, um, you know, with me on that journey. And they have really put the wheel. They've put challenges out there and gone, no, you can't say that, you know, or no, we don't say it like that, or you can't say that because you're not ready yet. And I'm like, I agree, I'm not ready. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I yeah, I did a couple of years of te reo study, um, and I'd love to do more. Unfortunately, we had young kids, and I and um, I needed to do lots of weekends away, and I was in a pastoring role, needing to be at church on a Sunday. So um, it didn't work. But I kind of, again, like you, I came out of two years of study feeling like I wasn't even up to kindergarten, uh-huh. you know, speak yet. Yeah. But but having had that window into a culture because for me that was actually the most beneficial was was like you say learning to see the world in a different way and um, as a as someone who's a bible scholar one of the biggest things for me was realizing that actually the bible was written by indigenous people who were being oppressed by colonizers they were basically and so once i started getting a view of te ao maori the the bible came alive to me again you know, yeah. in, in new ways, because I realised that actually it was written by people far more like Māori than like me. Isn't that amazing? And so that's been really a real revelation. And it, it is that thing of, okay, this is an important journey, but it's one we need to tread carefully. And I wanted to bring it up on this because I've had a few conversations about that over the course of the podcast. I had different people come on and, and share their journey, both Māori and Pākehā, mm-hmm. um, because I think being based in New Zealand, it's such an important thing that if we're truly going to be a country where we accept one another, we actually need to take steps towards each other. And those of us who are in that majority kind of position, you know, have a responsibility to to do that. Um, so it's great to see you do it and to be public about that. Yeah, and I hear yeah. what you're saying in terms of, um, my daughter said the other day some some phrase like if we do what's uncomfortable in the end we'll be more comfortable and if we do yeah. what's comfortable now in the end we'll be more uncomfortable and immediately I think of both exercise and food like you know I just want to com- comfort eat more of it now I'll be uncomfortable <laughs> later exercise I just don't want to do it it'll be uncomfortable it'll hurt but I'll be you know so so I'll be more comfortable later because I'll be fitter and weller and I'll live longer and better so I think that there's a, true discomfort in in engaging with um, Te Ao Māori because we do have to face that colonial heritage, um, our settler heritage, and also discomfort because you don't want to get it wrong, you don't want to cause more marmite, more pain, more hurt. And yet um, it is it, it has given me so much more than it's taken and I, I truly hope that I would be able to to give back in terms of the idea of the treaty in the first place was partnership. We looked at each other and we said, whoa, 
what you've got's amazing. And and they looked at us and they went, whoa, what you've got's amazing. Let's collaborate. And and to be able to rewrite the story, to be able to be in New Zealand right now in the in the transformation of what's going on, the renaissance of the language, uh, the rewriting of the history books, and to see New Zealand come home to its true self is something, you know, I, I want to contribute to. And I think that the church has a place and is currently um, not not benefiting or making the most of the opportunity yeah. of being where God is. God is in this, um, God is the God of redemption and God is in the process of redeeming all things, creation, uh, people, community, culture to himself, to herself, to the God self. And so this idea that we could partner with God in, in the redemptive activity is very exciting. And then I come across, um, you know, theses like uh, Alistair Rees, who, who says that when we have an existential crisis of identity, that as Europeans, when we go, well, well, who am I? And who are my ancestors? And where do I come from? Which is my mountain? And which is, it's really confronting as a Kiwi to do this. I'm not carrying the language trauma of having had my language taken from me. My questions are, whoa, do I belong? How do I belong? Where do I belong? And when we look at the treaty, it is an invitation to belong. It's a place to stand as a people group in partnership with. And so the thing that a lot of people have looked at in the past as being this this thorn in the side, this this thorn in in the claw of, is this difficult thing where we had to give all this money. There is another whole way of seeing it. It is the door that we can walk through to belong to this country and work together. Yeah. I love that idea that you were talking about the uncomfortable thing. Um, And I remember Aaron Hardy came and spoke at the church I was at. Yeah. And and I I remember him, a lot of people looked shocked after he said it, but then kind of got what he was saying. And, and, you know, he was saying, you know, don't, don't label something as, spiritually bad just because it feels uncomfortable to you you know that and that's what we've done a lot in the past is going oh no oh I think that the words he used was something like you know it it doesn't feel right in my spirit but actually that's often just language for this is uncomfortable yeah I'm not used to this I haven't thought of it like this and actually if we just acknowledge that yeah that's a huge step forward isn't it it just going actually this is uncomfortable yeah Okay, good. Let's yeah. acknowledge that, and yeah. now we can go somewhere. And that's actually something that came up in a chaplaincy chat that I had last week, and it was that when we do new things, when we try something new, I remember having, um, this will make me sound like such a white person, I had a lesson, a skiing lesson, and I'm like, useless at skiing, right? I like took it up as an adult, useless at it, and, I, and I, the skiing instructor said, you do it like this, and he said, how does it feel? I said, it feels wrong. It feels different. He said, it's supposed to feel different because you're doing it differently. It's supposed to feel unusual, it's supposed to be, but as you keep doing it, this is a better way of doing it, and this is the way you've got to keep doing it. So now I always have in my mind when I'm trying something new, comfort is not the sign that I'm on the right track. Actually, the fact that it feels different or crunchy or or slightly difficult is a sign that I am doing something different and therefore might end up with a different result, (laughs) potentially a a better, more whole result. Now, I, I love that. And... You know, you and I have probably done this, but when we step back from all the jargon and story and metaphor that we're used to, to somebody who has no Christian um, interface, being slain in the blood of the lamb or drinking somebody else's blood and eating their flesh sounds remarkably like cannibalism to me or just plain 
cult's weirdness, yeah. and totally. yet we are used to our symbolism and our metaphor. So, so if we can hold the tension of I don't understand and I don't feel comfortable, but what could this mean? Or, Holy Spirit, what would you say to me about this if I can hold the tension a little longer, hold the, hold the pain, the fear, the doubt? You know, I think there's goodness on the other side of a lot of that question. Talking of newness and new things, uh, you've got a podcast coming out soon. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you want to tell us about that? That's a step in a different direction yeah. or a similar direction but different? Yeah, I guess I guess being a communicator from way back, uh, there are always stories that, that pique my interest and there are journeys that happen. And choosing about maybe four years ago now to stop dyeing my hair because I had lots of silver showing through, um, and to go grey was um, a big step for me. It symbolised, because you remember how I take things really seriously, it symbolised the fact that I might never be on telly again. I'm like, if I choose to go silver, go grey. Um, that's me saying I am hopping off this train of looking forever, you know, 20, 30, early 40s. And I I didn't like my cycle of liking myself for the first two weeks after I dyed my hair and then hating myself for the next two weeks. So I just thought, you know what, emancipation for me, freedom for me looks like having my natural hair colour. I, I am not putting that on anyone else. It's just where I was at. And then I was like, oh, there's all these things that happen as we mature as women. Um, you can speak for the men amongst us, but as women and I think as Europeans even, when we've got a certain um, maybe financial stability or we've got a certain, oh, yep, I tick this box, perhaps it's children, perhaps it's a career box, perhaps it's a relationship box, perhaps it's a financial box. Um, what now? And so the podcast is called Grey Areas and its byline is growing up and going grey in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because I love nice. our stories. And I thought it would be worth talking to a bunch of beautiful humans and seeing what this, what Richard Ball would call the second half of life, might bring. Uh, and yeah, so we've just, we started recording and we've been stymied by lockdown. Yeah. Um, the Good Ship Lockdown has actually, um, yeah, we were about to record with a sensational New Zealander, but, but put her off on the day after, you know, the Wednesday that we went into this last lockdown. Mm. But I'm keen to to hear from women and to um, what is on the other side of being really skinny or trying to meet social expectations of how you look or how you behave or how you dress or, or how you work um, or how you parent. And, and looking at, yeah, that next season of life, which I, I suspect will be just a little bit magnificent. I loved it when I read about the concept because it's it's one of those, I guess, areas that, I don't know if it's taboo as much as it's just not talked about. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's just, I don't well, know, people assume that everybody knows or something. But, to I mean, I don't know any other podcasts that are asking those questions. I know plenty of others that are doing the sort of thing I'm doing. Um, I'm sure they're out there, but I'm keen. I'm keen as custard yeah. to get it going. Yeah, we're trying to sign off a deal with a, a platform at the moment, which would make it useful because it could get into the ears of more people. Um, but I am really interested in having some empowering conversations um, for and with um, women. And if you think again back to the old Māori, um, I reckon my generation and above, we should be jumping on board that boat and, and giving it as much love as we can because look at how they treat their kumatua, their elders. They are revered for the wisdom and knowledge that they bring, not for um, their youth and their 
their external beauty, for which we we are highly, you know, mostly not responsible for. You know, you get a certain genetic heritage, and yeah, I, I am, I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm learning to to look at that and say, where will I see value? Where will I see purpose? And where will I see goodness? And how will I, um, yeah, embrace that rather than measure it, rather than compare it? And and the indigenous world does offer a lot more hope um, than the current European worldview of you're old, you're not contributing economically, you're past it. See you later. Let's put you out to pasture. Yeah, yeah. 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 You can go travel the world. I'm like, really? That's what we that's it. Yeah. That's it. We travel the world. We we work really hard, we travel the world. No thanks. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's great. I'm I've interviewed my parents on the podcast and what I've noticed with them is as they've hit retirement, they've actually almost got more busy um, yes. because cause they've found a new lease of life, you know, and they're more involved in helping people and loving people and yeah. and because um, they have more opportunities to do that. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things that, like you say, Western culture tells us the older you get, the less important you are, but yeah. we, need, we need to change that. I think so too. And I think um, as as Christian men and women, and as Christian women specifically, um, we need to ask questions like, who are we waiting for to give us permission to yeah. take up space in the world, to to engage in really um, important, meaningful mahi, work that we believe in, work that we're interested in. Look, it doesn't all have to be charity work. It, I think that volunteering in New Zealand is phenomenal, and I know it helps keep us going. It, it, it can be beautiful work. It can be... Um, fun work, it can be restful work, it can be whatever it is that that adds to the order, the wellness, the life and and something I, I noticed specifically in lockdown is, um, you know, where where's the dancing? You know, we just need to dance in our living rooms and, and sing in our kitchens and we need that, that creative, um, joyful um, shenanigans. We need to keep our shenanigans alive while yeah. also engaging in stuff that's meaningful for us. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, thanks so much for giving time today. Um, really appreciate what you have to offer. Um, and yeah, just love your heart for people, your heart for um, goodness. And um, I guess that responsibility thing you were talking about of going, actually, what can I do with what I have where I am? Um, that's, ex- that's exactly how I, Andy, I can't believe you've, you've even come across that phrase. like, will I bring what I have to offer to the table? Will I yeah. bring it? Will I offer what I have in my hands, however small, however shy, however big, however crazy, however sane, will I bring it and offer it? Yeah. And you. I love that because, I mean, you've been on national television and you've done that, but we don't have to be on national television no. to do that. You know, that's whoever we are, wherever we are. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do with what we have, where we are? So yeah. I'm almost jealous of the people who've just been working diligently, who've just set, set their hands to the task, and then they look back on a lifetime of um, work and go, "Wow, look at the significance of that." Whereas, yeah, it's I, I, yeah, I just think everybody bring what you have to that. It's just, it's more than good enough. It's, it's beautiful and perfect. Awesome. Oh, thank you for what you're doing to help to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Yeah. Hello, hello heaven Will I hear you whisper to come near 
We covered a lot of ground in this episode. Hopefully you took as much from this corridor as I did. And tying it all together for me is that Petra has a belief that wherever she is, and whatever she is doing, she can make a difference. She can be a force for good in the world, sometimes in huge ways, raising thousands of dollars for charity, sometimes in small ways, sitting and listening to whatever a journalist feels like they need to chat through. And the same goes for you and for me. I come back to that same question for all of us. What can I do where I am with what I have? What can you do where you are with what you have? Since we recorded this, Petra has announced that her podcast, Grey Areas, has been picked up by MediaWorks, which is just fantastic. Uh, And it's set for release in March 2022. So make sure you check that out. And if it sounds a bit like you, then follow the link in the show notes to find out more, uh, sign up to their newsletter and hear when it's going to be released. As is my custom, Petra, here is a blessing for you. May your enthusiasm for life continue to burst forth in creative ways, impacting and encouraging all those you encounter. May the same desire you had as your career began, a desire to use what you'd been given for good, may that same desire drive you in every endeavour and opportunity that presents itself, no matter how big or small. And may you be encouraged as you see lives impacted by who you are and what you do. May the friendships you have made along the way continue to flourish, bringing you joy and life and support as you continue to do all that you do. May grey areas be yet another force for good in this world, bringing joy, tears of release and freedom to people's lives. May every grey strand of your hair be a reminder to you of a life thus far well lived and the wisdom you have gained from all you have experienced. And may you know the gift that you are to those coming after you. And lastly, may you continue to know that your worth far exceeds what you do, that you are loved by your friends, your family, and by God. Thanks to Strawn for the music and to Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to New York Times best-selling author Jeff Chu, all the way from Michigan. Jeff is a journalist, author, editor, teacher, and is co-curator of the Evolving Faith Conference over in the States. In his book, Does Jesus Really Love Me?, he interviews a wide range of Christians regarding their beliefs about homosexuality, from openly gay priests to members of the Westboro Baptist Church. It's an amazing conversation with a top-class human being. Until then, me enoi tato. E to mātou matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatiratanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Hummai kia mātou ai nei E taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Muro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga E hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia Engari whakorangia mātou I te kino <tries>